0: appreciate the praise team so much, Alan's leadership. Uh, I'm normally here a little faster, but I kind of got lost in worship there for a little bit. When things fall apart, things don't just naturally come back together again. Things that go down tend to go down until there's some sort of floor to to catch you. I heard about a man who uh, lived in the Soviet Union... He was standing in line. This is back in the uh, the early 80s after the Soviet Union had begun to decline. He was uh, standing in line at the butcher shop for seven hours. Then the butcher came out and explained, we're out of meat. The man was so upset. He said, I'm a worker. I'm a socialist. I am a veteran of the great patriotic war, and you're telling me we don't have any meat. This country stinks. At that, a man sort of stepped out of the shadows, a very large man wearing a very long, large overcoat. He stepped up to the gentleman in line and said, Comrade, comrade, please calm yourself. And then he said, In the old country, we would have done things a little differently. And he put his forefinger out and the thumb in the air and he put his finger in the forehead of this man who was complaining in line. They said, Comrade, you know how it was in the old country. Comrade, please, go home. So the man went home empty-handed, and the wife asked him, So, did they not have any meat? He said, It was worse than that. They were also out of bullets. (laughs) When things fall apart, they continue to fall apart and fall apart. It can go from bad to worse to worse to complete disintegration. Unless there's a miraculous turnaround of some sort. Unless there's some sort of outside intervention to set things right. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, is talking to a group of people who feel like everything is falling apart. It's gone from bad to worse and it's disintegrating. And the people are wondering, what's going on? Why is our world? Why is our culture? Why are our families? Why... Are our psyches just disintegrating and falling apart? You see they had been invaded and they were, you know, being exiled, and it's like, why is everything falling apart? And Jeremiah tells the people, here's what the problem is. In the first in the in the second chapter of Jeremiah, there's the first sermon that Jeremiah delivers, and at the heart of that sermon, and we looked at this last week, is this answer, here's what's going wrong. God through the prophet says, Consider then And realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The analysis here that God gives is is fantastic. He's saying the reason things are going so poorly is not just that you've done wrong. It's not just that you've done wrong knowing to be wrong. It's not just that you've sinned. That's all bad. But why have you sinned? The reason you've sinned is you've forsaken me. You've turned your back on me. You've turned your face in another direction. But why? Why did you turn your back on me? And the answer is because you've lost your awe of me. That's at the heart of the heart of, of the heart of the problem. There's been a loss of the awe of God. And we talked about last week how when it, when things, Are distant from god it's kind of like you've got the magnet and the magnet gets separated from the paper clips and they go all over the table but when the magnets gets low all the paper clips come together they're not just attracted to the magnet they get attracted to one another everything falls apart minus the magnet everything comes back together with the magnet and jeremiah says here's the problem you've distanced yourselves from god you've considered god to be not awesome he's not respected he's not odd as the awesome god that he is that's why everything's falling apart and this is what needs to happen in order for everything to come back together again. God needs to be God, big and awesome for you. Now, if you missed last week's message, you may want to go back and listen to it. We kind of talked about this and some of the implications in all of this. But this morning, I want to ask the simple question, how is it that God can return all to his people? How does God bring all back to us? And the answer, in a nutshell, is God... Pleads. This is what God does. God pleads with people. Now that's a really strong word and it's a word that can mean an emotional appeal to plead. It can also mean, uh, to make a case like in a court of law or in a public forum. You're making your appeal. Is it emotional or is it, you know, just kind of intellectual? And I explained in the first service, look, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how to judge a good lawyer from a not good lawyer. But bottom line for me is I don't care if the appeal is emotional. I don't care if the appeal is primarily rational. If I have a lawyer that's arguing my case, if I've been accused of some criminal act, if I've been accused so the sentence is going to jail, bottom line, here's what I want from my lawyer. I want my lawyer to plead my case, and I want to get off. I don't care if it's mainly emotional or mainly rational or if it's both. Bottom line, I just want other people to be convinced that that's God. He's making an appeal. It is emotional. It is rational, as we're going to see. There's lots of warning that's attached to all this. But he is pleading and pleading and pleading, interestingly enough, for people to come back to him. Now, this is a very strong word. The word, the word plead. Uh, I was uh, looking through... Uh, this chapter, chapter 2 of Jeremiah, which is what we're going to look at in just a second. I was reading it in the NIV and then the Christian Standard Bible and reading. It's like, what is going on here? And I thought, I think it's pleading. And then I finally got over to the King James translation, which is Brett's favorite. And the word is used actually four times, very obviously, in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, one of the verses includes the word twice, please. Check this out. This is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 9. I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. In this chapter, as God is calling people to Him, He is pleading and pleading and, and pleading with people. It's a strong word, to plead. It's used only one time in the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 8 when the demons are being cast out of this man and they plead with Jesus. If you're going to cast us out, throw us into the, the pigs. It's like very emotional, very you know gut-felt. It's pleading. That's exactly what's happening in this chapter. And as Jeremiah allowed, pe- allowed God basically to plead through him to people... So, too, you and me. God pleads with us, but God also pleads through us. And you see this in the New Testament over in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead. You, me, we all. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. As God pleads through Jeremiah, God pleads through you and through me. And so, as we think about our God who pleads with people... Our God who pleads with us. This also has some kind of direct implications for us in terms of how it is that we ought to plead. So this morning in the time that remains, what we're going to do is just kind of focus on how is it that God pleads with people. And there are three things that I see in this text. I'm going to mention them right off the bat here. He pleads with a breaking heart. God pleads using reason and warning. And God pleads while offering self sacrificing grace. We'll get into that in a second. Everything falls apart without an all-god. There needs to be returned to all god. God pleads and this is exactly how he pleads. Now, how, now that we've covered all that introductory material, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The te- the text again is Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 2 through 9. God says through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, Judah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. There weren't crops everywhere, it was just dust and sand. Israel was holy, set apart to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. God was saying, I protected you. When you drew close to me, I protected you from everything and everyone around you that wanted to do you harm. That's how our relationship worked. I was life in the midst of a desert of death. I am the God of the Exodus. That's what's going on. Verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? That they strayed so far from me, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. There's this constant theme in the Old Testament and it's in the book of Jeremiah where if you make God worthless, you become worthless. If you turn your back on the God in whose image you've been created, if you say he's not glorious, you lose your glory because here's how we are. We're like the moon and God is the sun, but if you say I want the sun blacked out, then you don't shine. He loses his glory and brilliance, you lose your glory and brilliance. He becomes weightless. You and everyone else around you become weightless. You follow worthless idols, you become what it is that you worship. And if your idols are worthless, then you are worthless. This is the inevitable result of turning your back on God. It's not good for you to turn your back on your Creator. Then he moves on. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness? A land where no one travels and no one lives. Nobody was asking these things. God was the afterthought of their existence. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. You became worthless. Everything that you touched became worthless. Everything lost its value. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following Worthless idols. And then in verse 9, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. All right, so God pleads. How does he plead? First off, God pleads. Oh, you know what? I think you're watching it and listening to me at the same time. That's a. You know what? I've never had anybody get so excited. I mean, really, I've never had somebody so excited about a sermon that they wanted to listen online and live at the same time. Double blessing upon you. That is fantastic. I was wondering what was going on. That's fantastic. Uh, wow. I thought my wife was the only one that wanted to watch two times, three times, four times. No, that was just kind of kidding. Uh, all right, so. I don't know. Squirrel. Okay, where are we? Uh, God pleads, and God pleads with a breaking heart. Okay, now I say breaking heart intentionally, because a broken heart is different than a breaking heart. A broken heart is done. Like you're done. A breaking heart is available for more breaking. That's how God is. He's his his heart's breaking. It's hurting. He's wounded, but he's always ready for more. That's amazing. Did you notice back in verse 2 where, where God says, I remember how you followed me through the desert, through land unsown, there was no crops around. I, you know, I, I brought you through this really dry and dusty place. It was a place of, you know, darkness, of drought, and nobody goes through there because everybody who goes through there, they die. But, but I was life in a desert. I was, Light in darkness to you. That was fantastic. You know how it is early in the in the marriage, in the honeymoon stage. I remember. That was fantastic. You know, I was so thrilled. I remember. See, there's emotion on God's part. But there's also radical disappointment because toward the end of the sermon, in verse 31, God says, Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say... We are free to roam. We will come to you no more. God is saying, do you see how things have changed? Back when we got started, I was so excited because I was as I actually am. I was life to you in a desert. Now I'm a desert to you in the middle of your life. You will, People will come to me thinking, if I ever come to God, my life's over. I'll die if I give my life to Christ. God said, there was a time when, when I was the one who brought you through this time of darkness. And now I am darkness to you. God knows he's the Lord of life. And people look at him as the, the end of their life. The Lord of death. God knows that he is the light of the world. And people look to him as the one who will bring them. The, they'll, they'll run from God like he is the darkness. Now, do you know how painful that is to to be regarded as the enemy at worst and at best to just be disregarded as the afterthought of your existence when it's intended to be a holy marriage? What kind of a God goes back and pleads with such a loser Spouse, frankly, a God who is available to have His heart further broken, and, and God knows the the waywardness. God knows our tendency to to wander. He knows our forgetfulness. He knows that most of His pleading is going to fall on deaf ears because those deaf ears are attached to thick heads and prideful, broken hearts and spirits. God says this all the time. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy centuries earlier and God warns, Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases... Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. God knows how forgetful we are. And you say, well, is that really that harmful or hurtful to be forgetful? Go back to verse 32. In verse 32 of chapter 2 of Jeremiah, it says, My people have forgotten me days without number. What's most hurtful, to be treated like an enemy or to be treated as irrelevant? I don't know. Uh, but God knows that kind of feeling from His people. Enemy or irrelevant? Irrelevant or enemy? They f- go back and forth and the people just have a tendency to wander. And in their wandering, the people He recognizes they're so filled with self-denial and then, or, or, so filled with denial about the reality. And they're also kind of filled with a certain sense of uh, despair. Are they ever going to turn? Back in Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not run to Baals. People say, I'm not guilty. I'm not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong here. And then he says, See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? And any of you who've ever been around farm animals... Uh, During that mating season, you can't get them to really do anything. There's just one thing they want to do, and it's not what you want them to to do. Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves at mating time. They will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, and you've been denying that you have a problem here. And then you say, it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must run after them. There is denial that ends in despair. People are absolutely, utterly hopeless. And so here's God, the faithful one, coming to the unfaithful people who are in denial and despair and hard-hearted and forgetful and treat Him as the afterthought of their existence or maybe the darkness when he is the light or maybe the, the dryness when he is the water. They're doing all this stuff and God pleads once more with his people. He's begging them, pleading with them to come back to him. I don't know that there's anything more painful than rejection. I haven't experienced every pain in my life, but that's one of those pains. And of the pains that I've experienced, I would have to say rejection is the worst. And God has experienced more pain than anybody else, and it's the most pain of the most, the most pain of the most painful type. An inordinate level of pain. And then He comes back asking for more. I had a friend a classmate at the very least we were at least acquaintances in seminary and he was he was asked to perform and he did perform his parents wedding while he was a child his parents had divorced he grew up became a man and a minister and then his parents got back together and he did the wedding for their second marriage now to me on the surface of things that just sounds like oh how wonderful that's gracious and you know god's a god of second chances and this is wonderful and he was not excited about it, rather unenthusiastic. And I don't think I was reading things incorrectly. And I figured out the reason he was so unenthusiastic about it was, can you imagine being a child and seeing mom and dad fight, and then one does something and the other does something and it gets so bad where they get a divorce. And then you think, okay, y'all, are y'all just signing up for round two? Of your devastation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds romantic on the surface of things. But it's a risk. Of more rejection. When God. Pleads with people. To come to him. There's not a risk. Of rejection. There's a guarantee. That it's going to happen. And I'm not pointing at anybody else here. Just I'm including myself in this. Even for those who've received him. We kind of do these battles on a regular basis. Even from his own people. And remember, this is his own people. This isn't just him trying to make people who are not his people to be his people. These are people. And he's begging them to come back to him. And there's rejection on top of rejection on top of rejection. God appeals. He pleads with a breaking heart. Now, when I was actually back back when i was a philosophy student this kind of this question came up how could a god who's immutable and most high and of course untouchable how could such an incredible massive god become someone who would suffer and die i mean if god is great and he's immutable well he's above all this pain and suffering how's that how could god suffer and die This seems inconsistent. Well, that's from a Greek philosophical perspective. But if you're reading the Bible with any care, you read the Old Testament with any kind of attentiveness, you will see that God's suffering didn't start when Jesus was conceived and born and God's suffering didn't end when Jesus was resurrected and then ascended back to heaven. No, no, no. God has been suffering with humanity from the beginning. And the suffering will continue until the very end. I know a lot of times we talk about, yeah, I can't wait for Jesus to come back and make everything right. But, you know, God's taking his time. Like God is patient and I'm not. And You've got to understand, God is not indifferent in his patience. God is suffering in his patience. Until there's the restoration of all things, until everything is set right, God will continue to plead with a breaking heart. Unfortunately for God, God being God, God being love, God can't die. He's eternal. And so when he's wounded, there's fresh restoration and and healing so that he can be wounded all over again, just like it's the very first time this is a little weird to compare God to Wolverine, the X-Men character, but I will. I like that character. Uh, You know, he's not the most moral person or whatever, but he's got this supernatural power where he can heal when he's wounded. And so he doesn't, he can't really die. Not only that, when he heals, he heals completely. So whenever he's shot or whenever the claws come out, it hurts every time. He doesn't have the luxury of growing old where the nerves maybe don't fire like they once did or where there's scar tissue or you learn some kind of indifference to the pain. It's fresh every time because he's basically, for all intents and purposes, somewhat immortal. God experiences rejection as if it's for the first time. He doesn't have the luxury being a God of love to develop a a calloused indifference over time he is eternal he is love and it hurts but he still keeps coming back for more and the question is why would god do that it doesn't make sense earlier this week it was kind of interesting um, brett was telling about his dad who was leading someone to christ and had gone through the gospel and the and the The man says, I understand. I get it. I I believe this. And then the conclusion was, Are you ready to receive Christ? And the man said, No. Doesn't make sense. So the dad walks, Brett's dad walks through the story again. God, you know, we're sinners. God came. He suffered and died in Christ, rose again from the dead. All you got to do is believe in him. Does this make sense? Do you understand? Yeah, I understand. Are you ready to receive Christ? No, it doesn't make sense. Goes through the gospel three times. And then eventually Brett's dad agrees with the man, you're right, this doesn't make sense. And that's when the man believed. It doesn't make sense. Why would God come back for more and for more and for more and for more? from us. When there's a guarantee of more pain. Because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. He can't help himself. He loves you. But still, we should be blown away by the reality that awesome, awesome, awesome God is pleading with people like you and people like me to come back to him. The incarnation of Christ, a life lived on our behalf where he suffered and then eventually died for us. That's not a contradiction of the nature and character of God. That is a highlighting of what Jeremiah is clearly communicating about God in his book. So when God pleads, oh, God pleads with a, a breaking heart. You need to know that. There's something else, though. God, you know, you think, well, if God's just pleading, you know, with a broken heart, pleading, 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 does that mean that he's like all kind of needy and self-absorbed? No. When he pleads, he pleads knowing that he is best for you. When God is jealous for you, it's not a petty jealousy if he knows that he's best. This is what makes the jealousy of God for you a righteous jealousy because he knows that without him, your life will not be what it needs to be like the moon needs the sun. And so he pleads with reason and with warning because what's good for God, what God wants for you to want him is also good for you to want God the same way that God wants you. I want you to notice just some of this in the sermon that uh, is preached here. Which, by the way, you know what? I need to go back. I'm, I'm going to pause for a second because I really wanted to say this. If you're ministering for God, who is always pleading with a breaking heart, sometimes your heart can't take much more. God, God never is broken, but sometimes we'll be broken, and we need a time of restoration. Jeremiah gets to this point in Jeremiah chapter eight. He says this. He's looking at the people who are refusing to repent. He says, "My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken." In the same chapter says, I am broken by the brokenness brokenness of my dear people. I mourn. Horror has taken hold of me. Pleading on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, allowing God to plead through you the way that God pleads, it will wear you out sometimes. But you have to keep going because even though Jeremiah says, I'm done, I'm broken, he keeps going. I mean, we didn't end at chapter 8, did we? There's lots more. And I just have to say, just by the way, I really, really appreciate ministers who minister into the 60s, 70s, 80s that just keep going and going and going. Praise God for that. I appreciate our teachers showing up Sunday after Sunday being prepared, ready to plead for people with regards to all the different arenas of their life. I appreciate people, you know, like, well, frankly, like John Murphy who is going to plead using reason to help reach certain intellectuals who wouldn't otherwise get it. And it's kind of hard, too, when you have other people kind of I don't know, resisting your own pleading or being judged for this. Walter Bradley. You know, I don't know if y'all remember this, but this is, a don't know, about a year ago we were doing this near-death experience stuff and Walter's been pleading with fellow intellectuals and professors for decades, especially with regards to questions of faith and science and all the things that he has had to face from so many different directions. And here he is like four days after having his bladder removed and dealing with cancer, and he's back in church on stage helping to teach material. You know what that is? That is being faithful to the call to plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Sometimes it's going to get to you if you plead. But God, by His miraculous Holy Spirit, enables you to get what it is that you can't get, and that is to be repaired and renewed and to keep on going. Because I can tell you, in your own strength, it doesn't make sense that you would keep going and keep going and keep going until the day you die. But that is God's design for your life, to keep pleading. But the pleading isn't petty it's not small it's righteous and god does plead with reason and with warning verse 13 my people have been have committed two sins they have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water later on in verse 19 your wickedness will punish you your black backsliding will rebuke you consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the lord your god it's as if God is saying, when you turn your back on me, there's a built-in punishment. There's a built-in rebuke. When you when you turn your back on me, here's what happens. It's like you're rejecting both the water and the cup in which the water comes. You're rejecting the food and the plate upon which it's, which it's set. You've got absolutely nothing good going for you. And we talked about all these things last week about how personally, intellectually, you know, psychologically it's not good for you. But also socially, when God is not awesome as he needs to be, our culture and the whole world falls apart. I'm not going to belabor this because I think it's kind of obvious, but I want to mention something to you that I read recently from John Stone Street, who works with Colston Institute. He, he drew attention to the fact that in uh, 416 BC, during the Pel- Peloponnesian War, Athens was fighting against Sparta, and uh, and uh, Athens, for some reason, decided to invade Melos. Melos in their struggle. Now, Melos was like. It was the Switzerland island of the Peloponnesian War. They were completely neutral. So Athens invades Malas. And the Malayans said, What are you doing? We haven't done any wrong to Athens. We haven't done anything to you guys. And the response was this. The strong will do what they can. And the weak will endure what they must. And they... starved that whole island into submission. They starved the people into submission. They killed the men. And the the women and children were sold into slavery. You see, there was a time actually in the Greco-Roman world and we tend to kind of, oh, you know, they're so wonderful and civilized and all the rest. Absolute and utter barbaric domination. Cruelty, rape, Slaughter, torture, very common means of simply dominating and expressing and holding on to your own power. And there were no gods and there were no moral restrictions for this because it was assumed if you're strong, you'll dominate. That's just the way that it is. Tom Holland, an atheist historian, was reading about the Greco-Roman world and he talks about his feelings. He, He said, it was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. So what changed? Tom Holland, atheist historian, says this. Here's what changed. Christianity made the difference. You see, the Judeo-Christian worldview is this. We're all created equal. We're created in the image of God. And that means that all human beings have rights. Not only that, on top of all of that, as Christians, we also promoted the idea that all human beings, they're not all Just created equal, but we all have the same problem, which is sin. We have the same need, which is salvation from God. The things that we now consider to be inalienable rights that just seem so normal or natural or accepted, human dignity, you know, universal human rights, he says, all of that finds its roots, its basis in one thing, for one reason, the advance of Christianity. You take God out of the picture, you know what happens? Everything falls apart given a ministry of reconciliation pleading through Christ to be reconciled to God because if people are not reconciled to God, everything falls apart intellectually, everything falls apart apart. psychologically, everything falls apart socially. It's only a matter of time before things just disintegrate. The point I'm trying to make is God's got to be where God needs to be. And so God knows that for the sake of humanity. And so he does this constant thing in the sermon and really throughout the Old Testament. He says, compare and contrast. Look over here and then look, over, look at me. Look at your false idols and then look back at me. Don't just reject me. Know what you're rejecting me for. Think, consider then, and remember how evil it is and bitter it is for you. Use your head. Look at the consequences. Look at these gods. Measure things out. It kind of reminds me of that Old 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 Spice commercial. There's this guy. This is the only picture I could find of him. He had a shirt on. Uh, He's got this Old Spice commercial. And you remember kind of how it goes. He would say, hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now, look back at me. At your man. Back at me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using the ladies' scented body wash and switch to old spice he could smell like me i look down look up where are you you're on a boat with a man your man could smell like you know i'd love those commercials and the reason i like that is he's making this really simple appeal you're settling for a stinky loser okay open your nose and open your eyes you can do better This is what God does in the book of Jeremiah. He does it all throughout the Old Testament. Look at these idols. Look at me. Look at these idols. Look at me. Why are you with these idols? All they do is enslave you. They can't do anything good for you. And remember, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm the one who liberated you from bondage and captivity. Think, consider, remember, realize. So there's this breaking heart appeal There is this use of reason and warning because God knows that God is good for you in a way that no other God possibly could be. But finally, and this is the most important thing that you've got to remember. They're all important, but I think this is the most important. God pleads while offering self-sacrificing grace. Now, where do I see this? You see this in multiple places. You'll see that consistently God is saying, I'm the God of the Exodus. I brought you out of Egypt. I took you through the desert. I'm the kind of God that came to you even when you were in bondage and you had a slave mentality and you weren't even sure you wanted to come with me, but I made sure that you came with me because I'm the kind of God that saves you even if you don't necessarily recognize how badly you need saving. And I and I was your God and you were my people. Before I ever expected anything from you, I gave you the law after you were my people. You didn't do anything to be... Come, my people, I graciously just became your God and hoped that you would recognize that I am your God. But I'm a savior kind of a God. He's he's drawing attention to his grace and he's calling people back saying you can come back to me because I'm that kind of a gracious God. Because you could cheat on me and cheat on me and you could be this, you know, she-camel out in the wilderness and you could be this, you know, this donkey in heat and you've been all over the place and it does hurt my heart. But you can still come back because I'm this gracious God. God. That's being clearly communicated here. But then I love the way that he ends this. Toward the end of Jeremiah's sermon back in 32, he says this. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. Have you ever, you ever see a bride get to the front and, oh, good grief, I forgot my wedding veil. Oh, yeah, I was going to put those earrings on. It never happens. Oh, you know, I remember grandma's bracelet or, you know, my mom's, you know, pearl necklace. I was going to wear that. I forgot to put it on. Oh, my shoes. Forgot one. That never happens. You know why? The bride spends so much time getting all dressed up because she wants to get to the front and have the groom say, Woo! Wow! You're it. I accept you completely wholeheartedly without reservation. You're in. Now, what the brides don't know is that really wasn't necessary. But that's another sermon altogether. <laughs> you know, we, what the brides don't know is we guys are a lot easier than that. But the, the bride wants to be completely presentable. The bride's doing what we always want to do every day, which is in some respect or another, hide over our deficiencies. You know, you kind, of, kind of mask the spots that maybe we want to draw attention away from. We want to make ourselves we want to cover ourselves to be presentable to other people. And what God is saying is, I, I want to be your ornaments. I'm your jewelry. I'm your covering. I can do that. I can, I can do all the work so that you will be acceptable to me. I'm so gracious that not only will I take you back, I'm so gracious that I'll cover you in such a way that it's all me, not you, but that's okay. I don't care. Now we go, how does that happen? Well, we know how that happens. Jeremiah may not have had a very clear idea, but you go over to the New Testament, and here's what it says Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. How does Jesus Christ make you what you yourself have been trying to make yourself all these years? Here's what he does. He just, he takes our place. You know the story. He goes on the cross. He's, he is naked so you can be clothed. He is disfigured so you can be beautiful. He is absolutely, utterly cast out so you can be brought close to a holy, 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 holy God. He takes your place. He, he wins where you fail. He dies so that you can live. Now, this is not in of itself like the only argument for the reality of Christianity. And I don't even know that it's a reason, but let me just throw this out there. I want you to recognize there is no other religion anywhere in the world that even comes remotely close to this kind of God. Doesn't mean it's true. I just want you to know this is incredibly, absolutely thoroughly unique. In every other religion with every other false god, it is you, if you fail, you, you die. So you better not fail. With Christianity, it is, if you fail, I'll die for you. All the other gods want to take your life. Here's the God who wants to give you your life. It's really interesting. There's an argument. I don't have time to, to do that this morning. But in chapter 2, there's this kind of argument. He says, look at look at all these other places. They've got a false god. They don't run to other false gods because all the false gods are the same. The fact that you're le- leaving me for all these other false gods is kind of a demonstration that I'm the true God. Because there's only one truth and there's lots of falsehoods around and the reality is, there's no God like our God because with every other religion, the God demands your life. Doesn't give their own life. Says, you better live or you're going to die. You better, you better not fail. You better get it right or you're a goner. In every other religion, here's how it works. Our God is too great to suffer and die. But Jesus reveals the God who is so great that He suffers and dies. And not accidentally, but intentionally for you and for me. And we're the... She-camel and the wild donkey. This makes no sense. But, at the same time, it is absolutely compelling, totally beautiful, and different than any other religion that's ever been conceived. This is what wins people. How do we put the fear of God into people? I hear people say that sometimes. We need to put the fear of God in people. Well, I can tell you one way I'd put the fear of God in people. I'd send Jonathan over to their house. I'd like to see that sometime. I really do. I want to see him smack somebody down. I had these people, sometimes people make me so mad. Saw this, you, you see this stuff on online. This kid is riding his little scooter, sees a flag planted in somebody's yard. Not his property, it's the property of that homeowner. Kid takes the flag out, throws it on the ground. And his mama is riding the bike, kind of giving a little nodding approval when they go on. It just makes me, makes me mad. We'll put the fear of God in them. Right? Now, I know that does that seem condescending to you? It is. Does that seem harsh to you? Yeah. It is. That's how we want to respond. We see somebody doesn't have the fear of God, and we want to put the fear of God in them by being more fearful than they are. I want you to know that is not how God does it. There's only one way to return the fear of God to people, and that's through the positive fear, which is love, not the negative. Last week, we, we mentioned about what does it mean to, to say God is awesome. It means God is fearful, li- literally, to fear God. Why do we use that word? It sounds so negative. Last week, we mentioned you put a snake on the ground. It's kind of scary. Everybody's thoughts and imaginations and all their behavior centers around that snake because it's scary or that shark in the water or whatever it is. That's your fear. That's negative and it makes you paralyzed and it makes you self-absorbed. But there's a positive fear. It's the positive fear of having the beautiful bride that's adorned before you and you're about to get married. The husband forgets himself in the moment. That's why you have the minister walk the guy through every word one at a time. I do. I do. do you? Yeah, I do. You don't have to do much. The minister does everything. You know why? Because the, the husband can't do anything. As he's enraptured in the bride it's a positive fear everything in the mind at that time is centered around her beauty their life together what's coming next all the thoughts all the feelings all the emotions all the behaviors centers around her. that's a positive fear it's beautiful that's the fear of the lord and when you have that positive fear of an overwhelming beauty it liberates you and you're not self-absorbed you're absorbed in him that's true humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's an entirely different fear. But you don't overcome the negative fear with more negative fear. You overcome the negative fear with the positive fear, and when the Lord is lifted up in all of His glory, how do you do that? You show people He is a God who pleads with you with a breaking sacrificial heart. John puts it this way, in 1 John chapter 4:18, let's put that up on the screen. There is no fear in love. It said perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. You want to put the fear of God into people? You want people to see God as awesome? Here's the way that you do it. Old Testament and new, frankly. You show them the grace of God and the grace of God is on display most clearly in the Son, Jesus Christ. You plead with people, with God's breaking heart, You plead with reason and with warning for their benefit. And then you just do your best in the middle of all of it to show them God's grace. And you just show them Jesus. I think this is kind of funny. I was over at Alan Miller's house this last week. Alan and Lynn, just great. And Alan was telling me how in the old days when he was in the Salvation Army Church. And I don't know if this was in Scotland or the East Coast. I think it was in Scotland. He would go to these little camp meetings. they have a meeting once every six months. And he would, at the end of these long meetings, he would sing an invitation. And sometimes the invitations would last 45 minutes to an hour. I asked Brett, you want to do that? And his his response was no, but I was thinking he was going to say, well, sure, Ernest, if you only preach for 10 minutes, fine. But just pleading and pleading and pleading and people would come. I'm not saying we're going to do that here. I'm just saying we have a God who's been waiting on you. If you're here and you haven't responded to Jesus, you've got a God who pleads with you. He's a God like no other God. And I'm just letting you know that to the degree that you've said no to him, you're breaking his heart, and you're hurting yourself. So I'm, I guess I'm pleading with you. Um, Come to Jesus. If you haven't already, come to Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, you're, you're good and we love you. And uh, we, we say thank you for uh, wanting us even. Just the, f- the fact that you plead with us is crazy enough, but to think that you would even want to be in a relationship with the likes of us it's uh, it's mind-boggling, but you do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom to to those of us who do not believe, enough wisdom to recognize there's no God like the one true God, and I'm going to come to Him. I'm going to give God what He wants, recognizing that when I give God what He wants, I get what it is that I want, and that's to be completely covered and beautiful. My righteousness is to be taken care of. And then everything's going to fall together. And so if there's anyone here, anyone watching that has yet to receive Christ, I just pray you'd have the wisdom to say right now, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I've been running from you and I should have been running to you. I know I treated you like a desert and you're the life in the middle of a desert. I know you tr- I treated you like darkness and you're the light in the midst of the darkness. I've been so foolish. And so, God, now I want to come running to you and I know that I come to you through Jesus Christ, which was you. Taking my place in Christ, you—you you lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died, so that I would be covered, so that I could just run right into your presence like you've wanted all along from the beginning. So, God, right now, I accept Christ as my Savior and Lord. I pray that what Jesus did on the cross would be applied to me. Thank you, God, for saving me and my sin. So if you pray that prayer I want to be an encouragement to you in that Please send an email to me Ernest at msbchurch.com Or Brad at msbchurch.com We'd love to hear from you But for the rest of us here I want to lead you in a prayer Just, just like this God I, I don't know where I've been falling short But I know I've been holding back from you And I know that We went through a honeymoon stage I don't know a few months ago Or years or decades ago And, and for some reason I am not running to you like I should I'm withholding from you I've been unfaithful to you and I just pray, Lord, that you would forgive me. So whatever that sin is, you just might say, God, I, I repent. I turn from that. I, I trust in you. I don't know why I've been so distrustful in this arena. I don't know why I've been making success or beauty or sports or money or whatever the case is, my idol. But I recognize I've been looking at you as an enemy at worst. And at best, I've been treating you with indifference. And i I'm sorry that. God, please forgive me. And I know you've been trying to draw me back to you and and my marriage has been suffering. My family's been suffering. A lot of things have been suffering in my life because you have not been awesome to me. Forgive me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You stand as